Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Rob, if we haven't met yet. And I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad it's not snowing today, like last week. Uh, we called it Snowmageddon in the staff office last week. And uh, it, it just made Easter feel like this ancient distance away from where I am right now. But actually, Easter is this thunderous moment in history that's so awesome and unbelievable that I think in some ways we scale it down to squeeze it into our minds so that we can understand it. But actually on Easter, we learn many things. One of the things we learn is that there's hope beyond the grave, that, that this is not the end, and that central to Jesus and his movement is new life and new beginnings. Maybe you need to hear that today. We also learn at Easter why the angel said, fear not, go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter failed pretty miserably. I mean, not only did he cut off the temple guard's ear, but then he denied Christ three times within 12 hours, right in front of the disciples and Jesus that he tells he would never do such a thing. And what it tells me is, If Jesus can pursue Peter, who goes back to fishing, maybe he can pursue me, because I'm at least as big of a screw-up as Peter. See, I don't think there's anything we can do to keep Jesus from loving us and reaching out to us. But for some of us, I think it might stop there. What What I mean is, I think some of us settle for Yes, Jesus loves me. And I know this because he forgives my sins when he rises from the grave and he appears to Peter, who, and it forgives Peter, who's at least as big of a screw up as me. So therefore, I can have confidence that Jesus hears me when I pray, that he loves me, and maybe that I can even love others. That's true. I just don't think it's all that Jesus has for us. So if the resurrection happened and it really changes everything, then why don't we always feel changed? Or maybe I'm the only one. But I think some of us really want to be changed, but we don't always feel changed. So today we'll look at why the Spirit had to come and what happens when he really, truly comes into our lives. So we're in Acts chapter 1. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn there right now. We'll We'll have the verses on the screens as well. But in Acts chapter 1, it's about the same time in history from Easter to today as it is in what we're gonna read. So it's been several weeks from Easter, and now the disciples are in this place of the waiting. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one such occasion, when Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, for which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And then they gathered around him and they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So you have to put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples for just a few minutes. In first century Israel, the hope for Messiah saturated everything. This Jewish dream of expelling the Roman rule and establishing this godly government ached in everyone's soul. So on the surface, when the disciples say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It sounds like everyone's desire. And if Jesus says yes, it would signal the, the fulfilling of religious, political, and cultural dreams that they had for themselves. So I think there's a tension And there's yet an ambiguity and maybe even a fear. Because remember, for three years, you've traveled with this tight-knit group of people around a small country where you've lived your entire life. You've witnessed dining in the homes of the rich and powerful and also spending time with the sick and the outcast and the hurting. You've heard the words of God spoken in real time. You've seen miracles. You've watched Jesus cast out spirits. You've even cast out spirits. And now everything in your life, your interests, your relationship, even your destiny has changed. And then one Friday, 40 days ago, it just collapsed. You came into town for a a Passover festival, and then you watch your leader and your savior and your friend be killed. As the nation celebrates, you go into hiding. You fear at any moment a knock on the door is going to be your last moment and you're going to be next. And the city is teeming with all these crowds, but you're just hiding in the shadows. You're waiting. You're wondering. And then... Sunday happens, and these women come back and say they've seen Jesus. Then Peter runs out and says the same thing. And then John reminds you what happened, what Jesus said. And then that night, he appeared to you and the rest of the disciples. And then a week later, he appears to Thomas, who wasn't there, and the rest of the disciples. And then sometime later, appears to Peter and six other disciples as they're fishing. And now, you've been convinced that Jesus really is alive. And yet, the conversation has shifted. In the days leading up to today, Jesus' countenance has shifted. Like, something is up. So I think there's a whole lot of uncertainty in these disciples. There's a whole lot of, maybe, exhaustion. Because, possibly, three years of traveling around, depending on other people's money, and food and being harassed by the religious and political elite might have been exhausting. Just saying. So I think potentially the disciples just really want to settle down and let Jesus be in charge. Think about it. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to do that? Do you ever ever pray a prayer like that? (laughs) Am I the only one? Lord, are you going to fix my marital problems? (laughs) Because I'd like to just settle down. I'll I'll just stay here. Lord, are you going to fix my grades? I'll just keep showing up to class. 
Lord, are you going to change my coworker's attitude? I'll just keep showing up and try not to tell him off. I think part of our default is you be responsible, Jesus. I'll settle down, which means I'll disengage. It's exhausting. It's, it's exciting, but it's exhausting to engage in the spiritual realm, to see people's not only physical needs, but spiritual needs. Jesus went away. Jesus, when he prayed um, for someone that had a demon, he said, oh, this kind can only be driven out through prayer and fasting. There are times where he miraculously feeds people and he's not just feeding them physically and then he gets exhausted and he needs to go away and pray. I think that the the spiritual realm, engaging in the spiritual realm is exciting, but it's also exhausting. And so some of us want to just let Jesus be in charge of that and we want to settle down. So what does Jesus say? He says, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the dates, the, the sequence of time or the significance of time that the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In essence, you might want to disengage, but I'm calling you to engage. And I think this might be one of those like, oh, nuts moments. Now, maybe you don't use oh, nuts. Maybe you use some other words, but I had my first oh, nuts moment when I think that I remember when my parents dropped me off at college. Like I did the orientation over the summer. My mom came and she stayed over here and I met some friends and I'm like, yeah, I totally have this. And then the last Sunday of August, as I'm standing out on the sidewalk and I'm saying goodbye to them and I'm watching the minivan drive away and I turn back to my residence hall of where I know no one and I really have no idea what's going to happen <laughs> even though I went through orientation. I was like, oh, crud. What am I doing? The next time I remember it significantly happening was when this nurse walked my wife and I out of the hospital opened a car door, checked that little plastic thing that gets strapped in the back and sets this, this little crate in there with our firstborn and was like, well, there you go. I mean, seriously, you know what we said? We're like, that's it? Yeah, that's it. We just go home. Not kidding. Now, I thought a bit further, like, There has to be more screening. You're trusting us with this vulnerable little human being. We're not qualified. And we just drove home kind of in shock. Oh, nuts. And see, I think in those moments, I think we get scared. We don't know what's going to happen. And our response is to pull back. And Jesus is saying, Go forward. Go forward. I mean, this is what I told you about. Jesus says in John 16, I truly, I tell you, it's good that I go away because if I go away, the ad- if I don't go away, the advocate won't come. But if I go away, then I'll send the advocate to you. I mean, do we really believe that? 
Like, do we think that if Jesus was physically with us, that we would do better in life? Like, if Jesus was physically with me when I was in middle school and early high school, I wouldn't have been as lonely because I was pretty lonely. I was kind of not cool. Uh, Later, when I was a little bit cooler, in the rest of high school and college, Jesus physically with me would have meant I would have made some much better decisions, especially around dating. Because there are many moments where I'm like, I think this is not okay, but I really want to do it. Jesus, what do you think? And somewhere along the way, we get this idea that Jesus physically with me will make me better. But if you've read the Gospels, Jesus was physically with the disciples. And what did they do? What? They were still idiots. See, someone else said it, right? <laughs> they were. They, they still screwed up. They argued with Jesus when they didn't like what he said. And they're still driven by fear. See, I think bottom line, it's impossible to live like Jesus, like to have the patience, to have the prayer life, to have the power and the love that he has for all humanity, unless we have the Holy Spirit. Real faith and real change require the Holy Spirit of the risen Jesus. It's the only one. I mean, notice what happens here in Acts 2. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, and they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like a blowing violent wind came from heaven and filled the house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separate and come to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I mean, first they're... They, they notice what they hear. They're touched by what they hear. Like, today, we had this gentle blowing wind. It was, it was calming and refreshing. But last weekend, we had this violent, angry, biting wind. It was powerful, but nasty. This wind blows into the place and almost blows the roof off literally. It sends the crowds running. Now, I don't know if they were in the upper room or if they were in a covered roof of part of the temple because the temple was quite large. We'll talk more about that next week. But not only are they touched by what they feel and hear, they're touched by what they see. These tongues of fire that separate and come to rest on each of them, which I don't quite know what it looked like, but I know that wind and fire are always designated or are written to symbolize the presence of God. God was physically there. And never before had the Spirit been poured out like this. I mean, the Spirit hovered over the waters of creation. The Spirit was present at creation. The Spirit later clothed people, select people in the past, especially prophetic leaders like Moses and Samuel, or kings like David, Saul, and Solomon. 
And the Holy Spirit came in moments of inspiration for wisdom, for art, for beautiful worship. The Spirit provided power for for momentary mighty deeds like Samson killing lions or Daniel interpreting dreams. But never before had the Spirit come all over them. Think about it. Before the Spirit filled them, they were praying. There wasn't just, there was no breakthrough. They were, they were reconciling, but there was really no declaration. There was understanding of why Jesus had to die, but not necessarily what it meant. And the disciples came together, but again, no change, no courage, no movement, no impact. And then after the Spirit comes, not only do they speak in languages that cause miraculous understanding, but they act without fear. They're almost different people. They, they declare courageously, share generously, and invite radically. After the Spirit fills them, the disciples are able to attempt and accomplish awesome things that they'd been previously unwilling, unable, or just afraid to do. Now, why is that? I think what the text tells us is that they are able to see when the Spirit fills them the spiritual significance of the physical moment. Okay, just go with me on this for a second. You you don't have to turn off your brain. You can disagree but they're able to see the spiritual significance of the physical moment. In this moment, they're accused of being drunk by the crowds. Remember, the crowds that were there, most likely, that were there seven weeks ago. The crowds that shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Peter stands up against those crowds. Peter, who denied Christ three times, who was afraid of a servant girl just seven weeks ago, stands in front of the crowds. says, you think we're drunk, but this is not drunk. This, it's nine in the morning. This is a manifestation of the Spirit. This is when God said in Joel, in the last days, my, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. In the last days, your sons and daughters will prophesy, sons and daughters, men and women. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. So without regard for gender, without regard for age, even on my servants, both men and women, without regard for socioeconomic status, the spirit would just give itself out, not it. He would give himself out. Even on those days, my spirit would prophesy, and I will show wonders and the signs on earth below, and blood and fire, and billows of smoke. The sun will turn to dark, and the moon turn to blood. Those things all happened at the crucifixion. Before that coming great and glorious day of God, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, I think it should say, should be judged. Because those all sound like signs of judgment. But Peter says, be saved. And then he explains why fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man who was accredited by God. He gave miracles, signs, and wonders that validated who he was. And you yourselves know this because this wasn't like ancient past. This was seven weeks ago. Many of you saw it. 
and Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan because we believe that God is sovereign in this. God knew what he had to do. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Again, not something someone would say when they're afraid of a servant girl. But when the Spirit fills them and they can see the significance of this moment, that, that this manifestation of the Spirit was foretold in Joel and they point back to it. That this moment of judgment is actually a moment of salvation. That even though these wicked men put Jesus to death and you helped, it's for salvation. It's so that everyone can be saved. Jesus was nailed to a cross. He was put to death. He went in the grave. He rose from the dead. And then he'll get there. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the cross and the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold. And then a couple verses later in verse 32. And then God ascended. God raised this Jesus to life. There was the death at the cross. There was the grave. There was the resurrection. And there was this ascension. This ascension essentially says, now God has vindicated Jesus that, that this power of cruelty is not the final authority that Jesus being in heaven and sending the Spirit is a sign to all of us and all of them that Jesus triumphs, that this new world order has begun, that God has received Jesus, God the Father has received Jesus, and the promised Holy Spirit has been poured out for all of you. See, I think the disciples are not only convinced that Jesus is alive. They are also now so filled with the Spirit that every, every fear has been driven from their lives. And the other reason I believe that is because, see, if Peter hadn't been filled with the Spirit, I think he would have said something like this. Like, it's too late for you. You guys all suck. Sorry, we don't say suck in our house, so you all stink. You should, just, you should just leave town and hope that Jesus forgives you. But when you're filled with the Spirit, you realize that what God has done in your life, he can do in someone else's life. When you see the men, the women, the young, the old, the rich, the poor, all receive the Spirit, you go, God doesn't discriminate. He judges everyone, and he, say, he offers salvation to everyone. Whom I to not offer it? And he radically invites them to receive the Spirit. Let all Israel be assured of this in verse 36, that God has made Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And he offers that invitation to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the promises for you and your children and all who are far off. Not just the people you like, not just the people in your family, but the people that you'd never imagine would come into a relationship with Jesus. That is what is offered. That is what we can proclaim. I mean, we all fall short None of us have done good enough, and it's not even about how good we are or how well we've done. We have to turn 
our mental, our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual selves towards God. We have to allow him to forgive us for who we are, for what we've done, for the fact that we've rebelled against him. But then he washes it all away. He covers it all. He takes it all. Past, present, and mind-bendingly enough, future. God has already forgiven you for future sin, for things that you haven't done yet. And he invites you and I and us to receive that, join his church in baptism, and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that will live in us always. He, the Spirit, will live in us always, and it's for anyone. And the 120-person church goes to 3,000 in one day. And the church has been growing and multiplying ever since. That's what we're a part of. That's what I think we're still invited into. And we need the Spirit to equip us, because otherwise we feel like we're sharing our faith without power and without authenticity. We need His Spirit to fill our souls with this deep sense of gratitude for who Jesus is and what he's done. His spirit does that. I think we need the spirit to change our minds and to set us against simply settling for being liked and to realize that we're loved. I can't do that on my own. But the spirit of God in me changes me. It changes you. And he opens our eyes to see those moments when we'd rather say, uh, Jesus, will you just be in charge of that? I'll settle back. And he says, no, no, no. I want to fill you with such power for my spirit that you will engage and see those spiritually significant moments and jump into them. There are opportunities for my restoration and transformation to take place and for you to be a part of it. No matter who you are, what you've done, how much you have, or where you've been. That's what we're invited into. So have you asked the Spirit to fill your life? And if you have, then have you allowed the Spirit to be in charge of your he wants to direct your path. He has good plans for you. He wants you to experience all that life physically and spiritually and relationally has. And it's beautiful when we say yes. You pray with me. Lord, as we ponder Pentecost, the sending of your spirit, May we see the difference in your closest followers. God, and may we start to see the difference in your followers today to the people who truly have surrendered to your spirit. 
to people that understand your spirit is he, not it. The people that truly and radically have been changed. Not to compare, but to marvel. To sit in gratitude and to turn and then radically invite God as we, um, in, a, in a few moments, come to communion, to dine in your presence, to receive your forgiveness, and to share your body and your blood with one another. I pray that you would open our eyes to the people around us and that we'd open ourselves more fully to your spirit without guilt without obligation from an understanding and from a joyous joyous surrender because we love you